the heart of Wellington, Kansas, Powder and String Outfitters is your down-home, one-stop shop for all things shooting sports and outdoors. Welcome to the Powder and String Podcast. Welcome everybody back to the Powder and String Podcast. I am your host, Kip Etter. We are here in the Pattern String Studio with Justin Lee. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kip. I appreciate you coming on here. Justin is our newest addition to the staff. He is our uh, in-house gunsmith. And uh, I wanted to bring Justin on here to talk about gunsmithing. We are, we offer, a, you know, we're a full-service shop, and so we offer everything from sales and you know, retail, ammunition, outdoor blinds and feeders. And, you know, we're starting to expand into archery as we've been, as we, as, we, as the name powder and string talks about, but we're also a full service uh, gunsmith shop. And so Justin, you've got, you got the ability in here to, to do pretty much any kind of gun restoration or work possible. And, uh, so I want to bring Justin on here just to have you talk about gunsmithing and what that's like and what services we can provide, but but also more in more in depth as to you know what gunsmithing is and how you got to where you are and all that kind of stuff. So I'm looking forward to spending the next hour with you going over that kind of stuff. If you want to just start off with maybe tell our listeners out there a little bit about yourself and where you're uh, where you came from and how you got to where you are. Yeah. Uh, let's see, I'm 28, so I'm a little bit younger than, you know, some of the guys in the industry. Uh, graduated from Murray State College in 2018 with a, a associate's degree in gunsmithing technology, um, which basically means I did two years, you know, and got a full degree. Um, and then from there, I went and started my own shop and just kind of jumped into it and, uh, back in Texas and stayed down there for about five years, just running my own thing. And, uh, then I came up here to, uh, to take over your shop, and the rest is history, so to say. Yeah, pretty much. You got into gunsmithing. Obviously, you had a knack for guns, or what? What, what led you into? Yeah, uh, it was mostly just uh, my parents wanted me to go to college for something, and uh, I couldn't see myself just sitting behind a desk all day. So I uh, started looking for things that. Uh, you know, kind of piqued my interest, and uh, I thought guns were cool. And about six months later, I moved to Oklahoma and started college, and that was it. <laughs> the rest is history. Yeah. Is there a certain type of gun that you, that you're drawn more to personally, uh, or or uh, aspect that you like more in the gunsmithing than? No, I, I kind of like all the guns. Um, I I do. Uh, probably my favorite gun would be the, you know, the 1873 Winchester and, uh, 1873 Colts. Um, but as far as working on them, they're all kind of the same to me. Um, I'm more intrigued by, you know, finding what the problem with them is and, and finding the solution to that problem than the gun itself. Mm -hmm. Um, but with regards to, to gunsmithing, working on guns and, and that kind of stuff, you know, for, just using myself, you know, before we opened the shop, 
you know, I always, I cleaned my guns. I took my guns apart. I worked on them and stuff. But then after opening the shop and actually having a true gunsmith and seeing, you know, them clean it, it's a completely different deal. I mean, it's, you guys are, I mean, obviously you went to school for it, but you're taking the gun, just, just, just simply talking about just cleaning, you're taking the gun completely apart. Yeah, we're, we're going to get down to, to every part, you know, individually. Um, and, and it's more of a knack for, uh, you know, knowing what that part's supposed to do and what that part's supposed to look like versus just, you know, cleaning what's there and going, okay, that, you know, it looks like the part that came off versus it looks like what it's supposed to look like and do, you know, it does what it's supposed to do instead of just kind of what it did whenever I started. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Because when I, <clears throat> I, I'll be honest, when I, before I started the shop, you know, I would clean my gun probably just much like anybody else and, you know, go shoot it, clean it, put it away. Don't believe that I ever had taken it to a gunsmith, you know, for a full cleaning, if you will. And then after seeing it with my own two eyes um, and seeing how clean or, or how dirty they were and, you know, talking to knowing the person that brings the gun in or even my own guns and then seeing how dirty they were and then how clean they are when they're done, man, just a cleaning alone is, is we'll do a, we'll do a, a gun wonders. Yeah. It's uh it's kind of unbelievable how many guns come in and, you know, with various different problems and, and all it takes is, is a good clean and oil and they'll be back up and functional, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and run like they probably never run before. Um, but it's, it's just, uh, yeah, they, they need to be clean to, to function correctly. Right. And I don't want to just sit here and talk about a gunsmith and, and minimize it down to, you know, just cleaning um, while we sit here and talk for an hour. But I want to, I'd like for you, maybe if you could just elaborate a little bit about, you know, gun, uh, gunsmith, what does it look like? What's your day look like, you know, with regards to, to your workload and what you work on and, and what, what all the different aspects are of it. I mean, I know just from being in the shop with you that you you wear a lot of different hats, but, you know, trying to, you're working on a gun that's 50, 75 years old. It's something somebody brought in and then you got to find parts for that gun. Well, that's kind of the fun of, uh, part of the fun of gunsmithing is it's, it's never really the same, you know, whether we're doing a blowing job, uh, you know, like, like right now we're back there doing some rust blowing and, and, uh, some caustic blowing all at the same time. Um, you know, but, but no pro, no two projects are ever going to be the same. And so, you know, um, whether it is, you know, running down, finding parts or, you know, if we can't find them, then possibly making custom parts. Um, but, uh, yeah, on a day to day, it just kind of changes and, and we just kind of have to run with it. And, um, so what you kind of talked about bluing, rust bluing. Um, yeah, we're one of the few shops left that uh, I won't say few, but but they're they're getting harder to find uh, that still offers you know hot bluing, um, as well as traditional rust bluing, and and uh, that's going to give you a little bit better, you know, coverage than just a cold blue. Um, 
which still has its place, but uh, it's it's cold blue is never going to be able to replace you know caustic bluing or or rust bluing even. And when you use the word caustic bluing, that's what you call hot bluing. Yes, yeah, that's going to be your traditional hot bluing. Uh, and that's a process we have. Obviously, a facility here in you know at Powder and String that it the best way that I describe it, and I'm I'm going to probably uh, I hope I don't add insult to the to the industry, but the way I explain it to to customers or you know f- friends that you know walk in is is that we've got this science experiment back here. It's a bunch of tanks with water and salt in them and uh, thermometers, and there's burners underneath them, and then based upon the salinity level of the water, um, they'll have different boiling points. And then you basically from there put the metal into those tanks and leave it in for different various, you know, different lengths of time based on whatever your, your desired outcome is with that. And then from there you move it to a different tank and then certain, so many steps. And then from there it's done. It's magic and it's easy. (laughs) Uh, it's, uh, I won't say it's, it's hard, but it's, uh, Far from easy. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things with, you know, most refinish work is, is all in the prep. Um, you know, your, your desired outcome has to start when you start the project and, and how you prep the piece is going to dictate how it comes out. And, but even once you get into it and, and bluing's not a complicated process, but like I said, it's, it's far from easy. Um, but it's it's less about you know it's it's less of a science and more of an art when you're trying to get you know a particular you want it to look a certain way and and again it's one of those things that, that you can get you can get to that same black color you know that the deep black from from multiple different ways and everybody's got their own little kind of you know technique of how to to really get you know because sometimes parts don't want to take and sometimes you have to shock them and, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, like I said, it can get kind of fun to try to figure out exactly how or why, you know, one particular piece is not turning the way it should or, or, uh, even just a spot on a piece that doesn't want to take. Um, and just trying to figure out how exactly to get that particular part of the metal to actually take the bluing the way that it's supposed to and, and blend it all together and make it look uniform and, and correct. Yeah. It, and I've, <laughs> I've used the word, uh, you know, it's an art form. Yes. Yeah. It's, it, it kind of, it's one of those things that kind of blends art and science together. Um, cause there is, there is a step-by-step process that, that that's the basis that you start from is, you know, you, you have to have your tanks at the correct temperature. You have to run, you know, the, the correct amount of time in the cleaner, the correct amount of time in the tank, but, uh, you know, I always revert back to in college when I blew to 1911 and it, uh, I was going from blowing tanks to cold water and back to blowing tanks every five minutes for, uh, I think it ended up taking me about 14 hours to get it to finally take, to get the color I wanted. Um, and like I said, you can't really account for that. There's, there's not really any, you know, set like this particular gun is going to take this long or, or, you know, it's just kind of a, uh, play by feel and, and look and, and try to get the color that you want. So what you're saying is, is that there is, it's not like with, it's not like you just taste this barrel and toss it in there. And then, you know, because that was a, you know, a, a Ruger 1022 barrel that that's going to blue this certain, in this certain fashion. 
No, I mean, like I said, we have a baseline of, of, you know, process set out and, and if everything goes as is planned, then yes, it worked exactly that way. But, but, uh, it usually doesn't happen that way. Usually it, it takes, you know, either extra time in the tank or like I said, going to cold water and then back to hot or, um, you know, uh, steel wool and, and kind of rubbing out, you know, if, if, it, if an engine, if it's small spot or something you don't really won't take, then you can kind of, there are certain things you can do to, to kind of encourage it to take the bluing. And then you also, uh, mentioned, uh, rust bluing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, rust bluing is the technique of, uh, well, you, you take a different type of acid and, uh, and rub it into the, uh, steel after you've prepped it, obviously. And then uh, boil it to, to kind of convert the rust and then cart it off and, and continue that process and, and um, basically cause the rust to grow um, and form that coating that you're looking for. Um, it's the more, uh, I will say that as far as I can tell, that's the more traditional uh, method of bluing. Whereas we've, had, we've only had caustic bluing since the 1930s and uh, rust bluing dates back. Well, they, they browned, you know, uh, they browned muskets all the way back into the 1700s. And that's, that's a form of rust bluing, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically the bluing, bluing is a rough term for basically it's a controlled rust. Yes, absolutely. You're, uh, I, I like to say you're farming rust because you're, you're controlled growing rust over the surface of the gun to form an even coating of rust. Which um, then combats against further rust rust essentially yeah you have to stop the growth once you get that fine film of of black on it but it is rust nonetheless and uh that's why you have to keep them oiled and and wiped down otherwise they'll uh continue to grow and that's when you'll get pitting and and then that's a problem you have to start over yeah and once you get pitting then that point the only way to get it out is with buffing wheels and no you actually you you can't buff out pitting uh you'll just end up because basically pitting is a crater inside the the metal right. and you'll just uh you smooth it out you but you'll have but you'll have an, a reset in them is what i yeah right so you, so you have to file out pitting um with withdraw filing um and then yeah start like i said that that's going to be your baseline start you you draw file all your pits out and then polish up to whatever grit you want to polish to and then from there obviously you run when you're starting to to remove material then at that point you've got also the additional issue of trying to make sure that you've got enough material left over. Yeah. It usually doesn't come up to an issue of, you know, thickness. Um, it can, uh, especially with like European shotguns that are, that are already thinner barreled and things like that. Um, but, uh, usually even when you're draw filing, you're only taking a thousandth of an inch or maybe two thousandths of an inch off. So it's not, uh, <clears throat> it's not an issue of, um, of thickness left once you're done. But, uh, a lot of times it becomes an issue of time of how long it would take to, cause I mean, once you get in, you know, 10, 12, 15 hours, a lot of people don't want to pay you to, to spend that long draw filing on their gun. Yeah. We have, we have customers that'll come in and say, Hey, you know, I got this old family heirloom and I want to have it restored. And, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a shotgun or whatever that my grandpa gave me or my great grandpa gave him or whatever. And, so I want to have it, you know, brought back to, to what it was when it's brand new. And so with that, 
you know, you go to work and you do your thing. Um, but we also have, you know, guns that people have that, that are, have a perceived value or there is a value, um, to them. And some, sometimes I'll bring them in and there's a, the perception or the thought that if it's restored, then it'll add value to the gun. And that's not always the case. No. And a lot of those older guns, if you, uh, you know, take a single action army Colt, for example, you, uh, if you go to polish and, and remove a material off of those and, and refinishing them, they'll actually lose value to, to most collectors. Um, strictly because they want them in original condition. Um, whether that condition's kind of rough or not. Um, and so there's a lot of times that, that we will turn a, you know, a, a, a refinished job away strictly based on we don't want to destroy the value of somebody's firearm. Um, even though it may look better to them, but for the actual value will we'll drop. And I wouldn't say that we turn it away. It's just once we educate the. Right. The we, owner. we won't, we won't strictly turn it away, but we will, you know, at least suggest to them that we don't do the refinish. Um, whereas we may just kind of try to buff off the, the surface rust that's there and, and try to get back down to that finish. Um, without actually taking away and re replacing basically, that finish. Basically trying to preserve it where it's in the condition it's in at that point. Right. Yeah. We'll we try to try to keep the, what finishes left. Yeah. And another thing with regards to gunsmithing, that's obviously, you know, and I don't know if it's completely unique to it, but it's definitely intriguing is, is that, you know, everything we've been talking about up to this point is talking about the preservation of the metal part of the gun. But then in addition to that, you've also got the wood portion of it. So as a gunsmith, you know, again, I'm watching you guys back there work is that you're now you're a woodworker and you, yeah, it's, uh, that, again, that's kind of the fun of, of gunsmithing is we get to do just a little bit of everything. And, and, uh, a lot of times, you know, guys will come into the industry and they'll pick a specialty of whatever they're best at. But those of us that, you know, don't really specialize in, in woodworking or, you know, bluing or anything. We, we do a little bit of everything and, and, um, and stock making is, is, you know, as in depth as bluing is, we, we can, um, you know, we can completely start from scratch and, and build a new stock or, or. Yeah. From a blank of wood. Mm -hmm, from a blank of wood. And, and of course there's, you know, varying degrees of, um, there's varying degrees of complexity as far and, and, you know, the uh, financial side, there's varying degrees of cost and, and things like that in the stock making as well as the uh, bluing. Um, but even, you know, in a, in a, like the restorations that we're doing right now, we're, we're, uh, we just took the stocks that they had, you know, and sand them completely down, take all the old finish off, sand them down, um, and re refinish the stocks there and, and put, uh, uh, just some sort of wood finish, whichever, you know, whatever we decide to use on that given day um, to finish them back out. And and the goal is to try and get them to as close to what was original as possible. Yeah. On some guns, it just depends on, again, uh, if you take an older gun, then yes, you would probably try to look for the original, you know, finish unless, you know, somebody does want that custom look and, and then you just try to make it look. Yeah, because sometimes we have, guy, we have guys that will come in and they're like, all right, this is a family heirloom, but I want it to, I, I want the stock to be a little darker. And I want the, you know, instead of the the blue, you know, it's not just like every gun has this, the same bluing finish. There's 
several different styles, I guess, if you will, of the bluing. So you can you can take a a gun and it can still be the all the original parts, but but we can make it completely look different as well. Yeah, there's going to be large variations between you know, say a blast and blue, or you know, and the same with a with a stock. We can just scrape it down and and you know, sand it up to to like 200 grit and then finish it versus if we take it all the way, you know, up to a thousand grit or, or even higher than that, you know, and completely fill the pores and seal it up completely. And, uh, and then go and build finish on top of that. It's going to be the, it could be the same piece of wood underneath, but it's going to look completely different based on again, prep work is everything. So how long does it take if you were, I mean, and again, you're not working on one gun. Generally you're working on multiple guns. Uh, I know when you came in the shop, we were something over 200 guns that we had in the shop that we were currently working on. Um, anywhere from, you know, complete restoration um, to um, just a clean, clean and oil. But what is the the process? If you were just to focus on just one gun, what, what would you guess that the time, to, time frame is if it was a, you know, 100-year-old family heirloom that, that – um, they wanted to have it brought back to, to as close to original as possible. It's kind of hard to estimate something like that because it's uh, most of your time is in prep work, both on wood and metal, you know, regardless. And so uh, you take that 1890, for example, we, we get started on it and uh, we'll come to find out we have to make a part. So that adds, you know, three to four hours to make the part. And you got to make the part because it's an 1890, mm-hmm. you know, 130 year old gun and, Parts, it's not like you can just go get a part, right? Like, yeah, a lot of a lot of Riley's. Yeah, a lot of those older guns, the parts are are uh, becoming pretty hard to find. And um, but if the, if the gun's well kept and there's not just you know a ton of rust on it and you know not a lot of pitting, um, and we don't have to do a lot of draw filing and things like that, then it's it's it'd take uh, overall it'd be about a week to do the stocks and and probably about a week. If we do a rust bluing job, if uh, if you're looking at caustic bluing, we can get that done in, you know, a day and a half, two days. Um, but again, that's assuming you don't have to spend, you know, a half day draw filing out. You know, what's the process? I mean, I know because I just walk in and out, but the <clears throat> the um, rust bluing. How long are those things hanging in that cabinet? Uh, it just depends on the project. Uh, a lot of times, what I'll do is is just kind of you know, do one coat and hang in the cabinet for, for three to four hours and then uh, cart that off and, and put another coat. And again, it could, you know, you'll start to see change after the first coat or two. And, it, but it could take up to 10, you know, 10 to 12 coats to get it, you know, really there. That's why it takes so long, but it's, it's not like we're there. You know, if it's, if it's in the cabinet for 36 hours, we're not sitting in a chair, you know, right. watching that cabinet, you know, we're off, off doing other things. And, and so it, you know, again, with the same with the stocks. The stocks dry for 12 hours each coat of finish that you put on them. So it's it's not like we're just sitting there going, well, I wish that stock was dry. I could do something. You know, right. you're off doing something else. And, and so all in, we could probably turn a gun around in a week and a half to two weeks. Mm-hmm. But as a general rule of thumb, we're about three months is what what it takes. Because what you try to do, obviously, it's a business. And so we don't want to just fire up the bluing tanks. Um you know, from a cost standpoint, it takes, you know, gas, you know, money, time to fire them tanks up. So you're trying to get multiple 
firearms to a point where you can do, you can do them all at one time. Yeah, we we try to stick to a minimum of two at a time, like you said, just because it does take time to fire those tanks up, and it it is a once you go to caustic bluing, it's pretty much a half a day of of involvement, and there's not a lot you can do while you're waiting for. Yeah, you're standing right over it for the most part. I mean, yeah, yeah, because you, you we got to watch the the temperatures and things pretty close to to make sure because if if the caustic salts get too hot, then you'll you'll ruin the whole tank of caustic salts, and so if you step away for you know, 10, 15 minutes, go do something else, then you've cost yourself, you know, what those, those tanks, it's about $200 for a tank of salts. And so you, you'll cost yourself $200 in, in the matter of 15 or 20 minutes, plus the, the downtime waiting for, you know, to get more salts in and, and things like that. And so it's, it's not really worth trying to double down on those projects. So while we're bluing, it's, it's all, that's pretty much all we do. Yeah. You're just focusing on just the hot bluing uh, area. And then, from there, I mean, you've kind of touched base on, you know, making parts and, and, you know, having to manufacture parts. We've got, you know, a full machine shop downstairs. Um, so there's times where you've got to make pins, springs, uh, widgets. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, a lot of what we do down there is making tools so that we can, you know, accomplish projects. But, but when we do get into making parts and you've put together a very nice shop downstairs, um, but, uh, and we, we have capabilities that again, a lot of these shops don't have just because they, they don't have the capital to put into, or they, or they don't have the knowledge to do, um, you know, to run the machines. Um, but yeah, we, like I said, we're, we're making some parts right now that, um, it's a lot of, you know, make a cut and then try to fit it. And then if that doesn't work, you go back and make a cut again. And, you know, it's, it's all hand fit and that keeps your tolerances tighter and things like that. So now we've moved on from metalwork to wood, woodworking. Now you're a machinist. So you've, if you haven't picked up yet, it's a, you, you wear many hats and it's, it's a lot of different, um, there's a lot of different skills, if you will, or skill sets, um, with regards to being a gunsmith and just, and fixing, Fixing a gun, um, you know, on a very regular basis, we have people come in and say, well, it wasn't doing something and then I took it apart and now it's not doing that and something else. Yeah, we, uh, we usually charge a little bit extra if you bring me a bucket of gun, um, you know, where you've taken it apart and just come in and say, here, I think all the parts are here. I hope I didn't lose anything. And then I have to go in and figure out, you know, what you did or didn't lose and where everything goes back together and, and first we have to put the gun back together as best we can and then address, you know, what parts it's having. So it's, it's, you know, something like that will probably take a, you know, an, an afternoon or so to, you know, to get it back together. And then you take it down to the range and test fire it. And then, you know, then you're, you're basically starting a half day behind. And before you test fire it, then you're having to take your knowledge that you have that this thing can safely even handle. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, the safety of the gun is, is going to be, you know, in the forefront Fair of our mind because, I like being able to count to 10 and, and see out of both eyes and things like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, of course, there's horror stories of guys that, you know, have lost hands and eyes and, you know, limbs where guns have blown up and things like that. But, well, my dad doesn't have part of a left hand from one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I said, that's what we're trying to avoid is, is something, you know, catastrophic happening 
on top of the fact that then you've blown up somebody's gun that, you know, that was one of their prized possessions that they brought to you, you know, to entrust to you that, that you would take care of it. And then you have to explain to them that, you know, even if you didn't lose body parts that, hey, you know, we're really sorry that your gun exploded because we did something we shouldn't have or we didn't. And, you know, thankfully it didn't explode on you, but still, you know, that's kind of hard to mm-hmm. to explain to people if something like that happens. I know one of the things that we've done um, in the shop is taking a um, Damascus barrel shotgun and lining the barrel. And you can, you know, a person could bring in a gun that's, you know, an old shotgun, this Damascus barrel shotgun that, um, that's what my dad was shooting when it blew up was that. And if, for those of you who are listening out there, don't ever shoot a Damascus barrel shotgun with new modern ammunition. Yeah. Um, if basically what I would say on that is if you don't know for sure, you know, either if you don't know the age of the gun or you, or you don't know for sure that it can handle modern cartridges, I would take it to somebody knowledgeable. Um, you know, not just your uncle who likes guns or, you know, something like that, but somebody who actually knows and can tell you whether or not, you know, that's a safe gun to shoot. Um, even, even if they charge you for their time to do the research and things, it's, it's well worth it to not have you know, something like that blow up in your hands. Um, but yeah, like you said, we could, in theory on something like that, we could go in and, and, you know, go in and, and kind of drill out. Um, I think the project you're talking about, we took a 10 gauge and, and went down to, uh, uh, down to 20 gauge on it. Um, and we were able to completely line those barrels. So there was no pressure on the Damascus barrel itself to hold any pressure. The, the barrel inside, basically what you've got then is a barrel inside a barrel. Yes. And the Damascus barrel is just there for to look pretty. And the barrel inside is holding all the pressure from the shot shell. Is that similar <clears throat> to the way a modern, new modern uh, uh, carbon fiber barrel is? Yes. From what I know about the carbon fiber barrels, they're just carbon fiber wrapped around a steel liner. And yes. they've, they've done the... Uh, I mean, with the knowledge of what the carbon fiber can hold, that that tells you how much, you know, how thickness or how thick the steel has to be to hold the rest of the pressure so that it doesn't blow up the carbon fiber. Um, It's really common in older things, uh, in older cartridges, um, especially, you know, black powder and things like that that don't have as much pressure. It's easier to to hold that, that lesser pressure than it is a higher pressure cartridge. But they, we do it a lot in 22s. Old 22s, if you shoot the rifling out of a 22, it's pretty common to drill that out and, and stick a liner in there. Because you've got a lot of meat left on the outside of the barrel. The barrels are... Well, the the 22s actually, um, the 22 liner itself will hold the pressure of a cartridge. We tested that in college because we were kind of bored. And, um, but it, it just takes so little material to actually hold the pressure of a 22. And so, um, like I said, the liner itself will actually hold it. And so anything you've got outside that liner is just is just extra. It's not necessary. Okay. With regards to um, the machining, you've got down there in the shop, we've got buffers and we've got sandblast cabinets and we've got a mill and we've got lathes and we've got drill presses and we've got all kinds of different tools. Which one is there? Is there one that's more that you use more than the others or, or which one is, is is the machine that you operate the most or you guys will run the most? Well, that's just going to kind of depend on what project you're working on. Um, obviously, they all have their place and they're all important pieces to 
to run efficiently. Um, and I don't know that we could get away with not having, you know, any one of them. Um, typically I would say the lathe is probably the most common machine we use, but, uh, like I said, when you need a milling machine, there's no, there's no real replacement for any of those pieces. Um, but yeah, I, I would think the, the, the lathe is probably the most common. What I try to, to tell, um, when I'm giving a tour of the shop or whatever is that basically we have all the equipment to make or build just about anything you need with regards to the firearm and we could take from completely from scratch and not, we can't legally do it. We don't have the manufacturing <laughs> license and we would never do that, but we have the capability to do so. Right. So yeah, we could do anything outside of a receiver. We could pretty, what pretty much make in any, um, like I said earlier, a lot of the things that we're making down there are actually tools, less parts, you know, but if, if I can go down and make a tool in an hour versus, you know, ordering it for $50 and, and, you know, waiting a week to 10 days for it to get here. And, and, you know, and that's best case scenario. And you're making a tool so you can make a part. Making a tool to make a part or, or yeah, you know, basically anything you can do with a tool, we can, we can make that tool to, to do that project. And, you know, a lot of these things are, are, the tool would be specific to, you know, whatever model. So it's not like you're going to be using the tool all the time. So, mm -hmm. so buying it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so we can run downstairs and make it in, you know, an hour, you know, and then you've got the tool if you ever come across that project again. But if not, you don't, you're not out, you know, the, the material in the tool is not the, the high cost of the tools. So if we can make a tool and use it, you know, and, and get a job done. Um, you know, and again, save that customer seven to 10 days plus, you know, anything like that. Um, but yeah, that's what, one of the things that we're constantly, you and I are having conversations back and forth with regards to tooling and buying things is, is all right, are we ever going to work on one of these again? Or, you know, and that's a whole other thing is, is it's all, it's, it's completely remarkable to me with regards to gunsmithing. And again, things you don't know, you, you know, it doesn't even cross your mind until you get into this is, is that. Until you take the vast amount of manufacturers over the, you know, last, what, 130, 40, 50 years that there's been guns being mass produced, I guess. Um, they've been being made longer than that, but mass produced for, what, 140, 50 years, give or take. And then how many different models and different calibers and different variations and the changes in it, um, the, 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 sheer volume of different mechanical and moving parts that you guys get in the shop that you got to look at. I mean, obviously you've got your, you know, model 1100s and your, you know, 1022s that we've already talked about, or, you know, your, your, you know, Ruger Vaqueros, stuff like that, that, that you get in the shop from time to time where we know that the, what is it? The, the Remington 7400 and 742, Jamomatic that we joke around about, but you've got your troubled guns that come in and you know, right off the top, you know, all right, this is probably what the issue is, but the vast number of guns that are different and you got to take those apart and figure out what's wrong with them. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the fun of it is, is each and every one's kind of like a puzzle. You and, call it fun. Well, not frustration, fun, potato, tomato, right? Um, and of course you, you'll take a, you know, you take a gun like the Remington 7400 that, you know, that Remington made it. And so there's, there's thousands of them out there versus some of these guys, you know, that, that just made them in their garage. And, you know, they, back in the day, it, it wasn't that hard to get, 
you know, set up to be a manufacturer. And so if, if there's a hundred of them out there, that's a big run for some of these companies. And on top of that, you've got, you know, older shotguns coming in that, that were stamped for whatever store. Well, then you have to go in and figure out who actually who made, made it. Yeah. Who made that shotgun and, and what information is out there for that shotgun. So the Ted Williams, is that we get? Ted Williams is a big one. Um, there Sears was Roebuck. What well, it used to be back in the day, you could, you could be a, um, retail store, you know, like a, you know, smaller, well, like we, around here, we had Otasco, Oklahoma Tire and Auto Surplus Company or something like that, Otasco. You, you know, if Otasco reached out to, to Remington, Winchester, whatever, they could say, Hey, I want to have, you know, we're going to buy 10,000 of them. We'll call it the Otasco 1100. Yeah. They, uh, they didn't even have to buy 10,000 of them. One of the companies I was just researching the other day, um, well, in my example, they did. Well, one of the, like I said, one of the companies I was researching the other day, they, they said that they had to make five. <laughs> five? In order to stamp them for your, to be wow. your brand. And so, again, you've got, I mean, how many hardware stores were there back in the day that would order five shotguns, you know, and have them stamped themselves? We just had, so, what was that one yesterday? A guy came in and he had, uh, it was a eight gauge, because he was talking about, um, Oh, the market old, hunting. Yeah, um, the old commercial duck gun. Yeah, what was it? I looked it up on my phone. Maybe it'll pop on um, my Google. Um, but yeah, it was uh, something in Brothers. Uh, JK something. Yeah, if I don't have it, it's not in my, my search. But yeah, something in Brothers um, shotgun. And it was a, you know, it was an eight gauge, you know, duck gun. Mm -hmm. and. He, um, they that's the kind of stuff it's, it's cool. Cause we get stuff like that that comes into the shop and it's stuff that you, you know, you have a high likelihood that you're never going to see that again or very well, rarely. Well, and that's kind of not know, that, that particular gun, but it does happen with other guns. Right. And well, it's like I told that guy, you know, even if he doesn't need work or, or want to sell it or anything like that, if he'll just bring it in, we'd like to look at it just to, yeah, just to say we looked know, at it. Yeah. Just cause it's cool to, we had one come in before you came on staff. Um, we had one that came in and again, it could, you know, the promenade and what, whether or not it's true or not, but this guy had a gun that supposedly had been used in the, uh, battle of little bighorn, I think it was. And he had, I, I mean, I don't know that it was a hundred percent. I would say it wasn't verifiable enough for the pros or for even for, you know, for me either, but Regardless, the gun alone was really cool, even if it wasn't that. But, man, if it really was that and it did have that, that's just unbelievable. I know here recently there was a gun that they were able to trace, um, and it was on the um, – it went on to auction um, at a – oh, what's the uh, – I'm going to blank. I'm thinking of it in just a second. But um, basically the story of it was it came into a shop in Denver, and it was a revolver, and this um, lady – and her, I believe it was her granddaughter, brought it into this shop, and the shop owner was was smart enough to know that there's a chance that this uh, sold Colt could could be something that was real. Called somebody, and they called somebody, and uh, lo and behold, it truly was um, a gun that was from that that battle and uh, the, the battle the battle of Little Bighorn, and and um, the story that the family told was that her grandpa i believe so you know this lady's probably in her 80s or 90s and and um her grandpa owned a trading uh, a store trading post uh, store uh, in denver when denver was just a 
startup of a city and that an Indian came in and traded it for um, like a couple blankets and a pair of jeans or whatever. And then the daughter was talking about how she had just, she can remember as a kid that they would use it as a toy gun. And this thing ended up selling for, you know, a lot of money, a lot of money. And, um, you know, just to be able to see that kind of stuff. I mean, we haven't had anything like that walk in, um, unless that one that, that the, the gentleman had, you know, if, if that's true, then obviously then it could be, but we get stuff like that all the time that comes in and you just, you know, like, well, I've never seen that before. And, you know, we always have customers in and a lot of guys that come in that talk gun and whenever they come in and say, I've never seen, you know, when two or three of us around haven't seen it before, that's always really cool. I like that kind of stuff coming into the shop. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting to think about, you know, cause all those guns that were there, they're, I mean, they're somewhere out there now. And, and, you know, a lot of these people have them maybe and, and don't even know what they have. Mm-hmm. And so just to think about, you know, where, you know, even in like, you know, World War One, World War Two, all the guns that came back that the guys were, you know, putting in their bags and, and flying back with them. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and essentially smuggling back into the country and they're all out there somewhere and, and may or may not have seen use, but they still have a story, you know, in history. And it, it could just be, you know, oh, that was grandpa's gun that he brought back, you know, and it, it's actually, you know, somebody's something that. Yeah, that's, and we get those, you know, like right now we've got it. We just had a collection of um, Mosins brought in. So we've still got a few of those in the shop. And um, that was a really good collection of Mosins that the gentleman had. He had, um, the, the the cool part for me or that I find interesting with the Mosins is that you can see the the workmanship and you it, it tells a story of you know the Japanese were were pulling out or putting out you know really nice guns and they actually had some you know engravings and markings and stuff on them and then as you see them get towards the war and and that they're not you know the war isn't going in their direction the workmanship was definitely less um, there was, I'm not, I don't know the, the right way to say it, but the, the gun still functioned and worked as, as desired and, and still to this day is a functioning shooting weapon and, and, and a good weapon, but it definitely didn't have the, the decorations on it and stuff like that. And so they called those last ditch and. Well, that's right. the, uh, that's the Arasaka you're talking about, not the Mosins. But you're right. The, I've been saying Mosins, uh, I meant Arasakas. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, that there's, I've heard stories that, that towards the, the very end of the war, the, the, you know, true last ditch Arasakas were, um, they started using gas pipe because they ran out of steel. And early on, they were, you know, kind of smelting that gas pipe down and making barrels out of it. And from the stories that I've heard towards the very end of the war, when they, you know, realized they were done in, um, they were just slapping gas pipe onto, onto actions and, and handing them to guys and like, here. Uh, and yeah, just handing them you know, gas pipe on, on actions and, and saying here, best of luck to you. Hope you can, you know, maybe do something with this, but that's all we've got. Yeah. And I've read stories that said that at that time they were handing, they were making one gun and handing it, handing a gun and the ammo to another guy and saying, here you guys go. So they knew that. Yeah. that I think a lot of countries did that in World War II. The, the Russians were, were pretty famous for doing the same thing of basically we have too many soldiers and not enough guns. And so. When your buddy there dies, you pick up his gun and, That's just unbelievable. and That's then it's your turn. The the crazy part to me is is to think that you're the guy, you know, standing there and you're handed a you know, a stripper clip full of bullets and said, Okay, 
go and pick up where your comrade left off and best of luck to you. And, you know, I, I can't imagine running into battle and all you've got to hold is a stripper clip full of bullets. And I was just listening to the Sean Ryan podcast and he had a um, flamethrower on from uh, Iwo Jima. And they said that the average life expectancy was four minutes. Jeez. And this gentleman's 90 some years old and yeah, four minutes. Um, I think, I think it, I think this, they talked about there was a hundred and some people in his unit or whatever the correct terminology is. And, um, I think he was like one of the only ones that made it back, mm. like out of that whole thing. I mean, just freedom isn't free. And, you know, here we are sitting in America talking on a podcast about guns and gunsmithing and it's on the backs and, and sacrifices of, of those, those gentlemen like that. It's just amazing. But, um, yeah, going back to, to getting back to the guns is the, and I appreciate you not, you correct me on the Mosins, um, and, uh, Arasakas, but yeah, they were Arasakas that, that we got in. And, um, it, it's really interesting to see that. And I also, you know, with regards to the German weapons when they, when they brought them back, they were supposed to basically deface the, the swastika or in, in the, um, Arasakas, um, example the the chrysanthemum mm-hmm. um, the rose um and so sometimes that was that didn't happen and um a couple of those um arasakas that we got in had you know n- hadn't been defaced and so that's always you know cool to see that that they made it through that and you know there's there's a story there to them and actually one of them we had in had some had a old cloth with writing on it and mm-hmm. it was Japanese writing. And right. we took a picture of that and, you know, reached out to, and found somebody that could read Japanese and it. It was a person's name, but um, it ended up being that the person's name was basically a John Doe or, or Jack Smith or some real, you know, real, real common name, first and last name of that time. So there was no way to, to get any lineage to it or anything like that. But, you know, that thing was still hanging on there. And of course that could have been hung on by somebody at some point just to try and add additional value to it. But we don't know whether it was or whether it wasn't, but you know, just seeing that it definitely looked like it was from the, the time period and everything like that. But having the gun shop and, and with the addition of a gunsmith and the addition of our in-house engraver, we do get a lot of stuff like that, that other shops probably wouldn't see as much as what we do. And, you know, you guys have the ability to go in and, and, make those guns functioning and working correctly if they're not currently working correctly. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it, I mean, every day is a new, every day is something, we see something new in here every day and it's really cool to, to see all that, the, the stuff that you guys work on and, and being able to take something from old to new is, or, you know, and make it function again. That's, that's, it's really a transformation for sure. And we're, we're, uh, we're currently working on several that we're going to take pictures of and, and, uh, add to the website. And, and so that way that people can see exactly what your guys is and, and pictures don't, don't do it justice until you see it and, you know, lay hands on it. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. The kind of stuff that you guys can do, you know, back there in the shop. Is there anything, <clears throat> any, any recommendations you can make to people with regards to gunsmithing or doing things, no-nos before they ultimately have to bring you something? Uh, man, the only real recommendation I would say to that is if, if you don't 100% know what you're doing, um, if you get out there and try it, 
and and then bring it to me. Just know that you you're gonna have to pay for me to fix whatever you did. Then you know to go on and fix it. Whereas if you just bring it to me the first time or or to somebody qualified, not necessarily myself, but somebody qualified, then then you won't have to pay them to fix you know the mistake and then fix the the problem that was there to begin with. Um, and just there's so many guys out there that are you know they claim that they can do it and and we see stuff from them all the time where where you know people will bring stuff in and say, hey, I took this to some other guy, you know, to his shop. He claimed to be a gunsmith, and and then he still couldn't fix it, or he he broke it more. Um, and again, he oh, he had one yesterday. Which one was that? That Frankie. Oh, right. Yes, that they that they had taken in and and not fully fixed to begin with, and so it's it's back in here to to be fixed again. Um. Uh, and it, you hate to see it because you know they've already paid for that service and and they didn't get the service correctly the first time, so then they're going to have to pay double, you know, essentially. <clears throat> and it's no fault of their own that they took it to somebody that didn't know what they were doing or, or claimed that they could do more than they could. Um, and it's it's honestly it's hard to tell you know what somebody can or can't do without without seeing it first. But uh, but yeah, we see it all the time of of guys that. that took on a project they couldn't handle or, you know, and, and couldn't fix it and either didn't, didn't know they couldn't handle it or, you know, just didn't have uh, the humility to say, Hey, I, I, that's too much. I can't do it. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, I would say if you're going to take it to a gunsmith or, you know, anybody claiming to be a gunsmith, I would at least verify, you know, that they have some knowledge, um, you know, in, in best case scenario, they can show you where they got their knowledge, you know, if they went to school or if they worked under somebody and, you know, and then maybe most gunsmiths have a portfolio of what all they've done and they can go back and show you, you know, these projects mm -hmm. are kind of similar to, to your project and this is what we have done in the past. Yeah, cause I mean, like with you, you've got you've got your your diploma and your uh, additional certificates and additional education and training. It's hanging right there on the wall. And I know we've talked about um you know, since you've come on board, we've even talked about having you go to some additional classes to get additional training and, um, you know, continuing to invest in, in your knowledge and in your skill set and into your field um, to be able to bring a better service to, you know, our customers that bring stuff in. Yeah, and, and that's kind of necessary to just keep learning and growing um, and, you know, taking on and, and kind of figuring out what direction you want to go. And then you can kind of find training that that keeps taking you in that same direction, you know, and a lot of it is, uh, um, regional, you know, we work on a lot more shotguns here than, than what I worked on in Texas. Whereas, you know, down there, it was a lot of AR 15s and, you know, and bolt action guns and some automatic pistols. And up here, it's, you know, it's a lot of shotguns and there are still some deer rifles and things, but, but, uh, there's a, definitely a lot more shotguns here than, than down there. And so, yeah, cause you were out in West Texas mm -hmm. and yes, in West Texas, obviously it's, there's not as many birds. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's not, there's not near as much bird hunting down there as, as there is here. And, um, like I said, a lot of the guys that I was working for down there, it wasn't as much hunting. It was just more of, you know, recreational shooting. Um, and so they were putting, you know, substantial amounts of ammunition through their guns. And you guys and, have hogs down there. And there's a big hog problem down there. Yeah. Um, so there's probably a lot of shooting with that. Yeah. There's, and again, that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of rounds through a gun to, to go on some of these big hog hunts where they're, you know, shooting, you know, you see a, uh, 
you know, group of hogs of 20 or, you know, 30 or whatever. And you're, you just try to shoot as many of them as you can. So you're just shooting as fast and, you know, loading as many bullets as you can into it. And that, that's going to produce more wear and tear on the gun, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, the same up here they're doing with shotguns down there. It's, you know, it's take, go out and shoot dove one or two or three days of, you know, a year and, and versus guys up here that are hunting, you know, 60 and 90 days a year. Yeah. So obviously yeah, that's, that's pretty common around here to have, um, yeah, I mean, to our pro staff that we have, I mean, it's not uncommon for them to be in the field over 60 days a year. And we're not, we're not talking in the field, sitting in a truck. I'm talking about in the field behind a gun. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that's, I know that, I know we got one, one or two of our pro staffers that are probably getting up there over 90 days by the time you throw in, you know, going from dove all the way through Turkey, um, out in the field. And that's, that's a lot of days out in the field, um, running a shotgun. And when, when they bring it in. Yeah. You can usually tell the guys who actually use their guns versus the guys who, you know, just have their guns. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these guys out in the field, the things that they're doing and, and it, it doesn't always look the best, you know, but, you know, if you want to tape your gun and that makes it more comfortable, you know, to wrap the hand, the grip and tape or, you know, something like that, then, um, you can usually tell the guys who actually know, you know, that they did something for comfort or for, for use versus, you know, well, I saw this looked kind of cool and, yeah. you know, and usually they're the guys who, no, oh, I liked it cause it was cool. Their, their guns are a lot easier to work on, but the guys who, you know, again, use it for, for function, um, they're obviously getting more use out of the gun, but, but that makes it, um, you know, a lot more interesting to work on. Yeah. And I've, I've touched base on it before. I don't know if I've done it, you know, on, on a, on a podcast or not, but it's always interesting to me that we'll get guys that'll come in and they'll say, I want to, you know, they'll some oddball, they'll, they'll rattle off some oddball type of a gun and it'll sound like it's something that should be a gun. And then, you know, I'll, you know, look intrigued and be like, Oh, I mean, cause there's always, I mean, there's, I'm ceased to be amazed at, you know, again, we talked about 150 years of guns being manufactured. And you're like, you know, there's always something out there that you haven't seen or heard of, but then you ask two or three other guys, you know, that are in the shop that, you know, have a knowledge of guns. And between all of us, there's a pretty vast knowledge of guns. And then pretty much we all kind of know, Oh, Where'd you hear about this at? I was playing a video game. <laughs> so then you go to the old Google and you uh, type in whatever it is that they said that they wanted. And lo and behold, it's a made up name, but it's a gun that closely resembles a, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. Breda, whatever. And uh, so then we go and show them a picture of, is this what? Oh yeah, that's it right there. Okay. So obviously, you know, they're, they're buying it because they played it on a video game and they want it because it looks cool. But then as you mentioned, there's guys out there that they got it because it, it functions and, um, you, you can tell that they're, I mean, they're well, like our pro staffers, most of them, that's their job. You know, they're out there in the field for 90 days. They don't, they don't care what the gun looks like. They want it to function and they want it to work. And they're out there every day beating the woods and, and, uh, you can tell when they bring their guns in. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely, uh, like I said, the guys are using them all the time are, are going to tear them up and, and, um, which any reason that you can get into, you know, guns, I think is a good reason, but, 
I do, I do wish the video games in Hollywood would get a little bit more realistic. That way we could stop crushing people's dreams and they come in and ask, you know, oh, I want a, you know, fully automatic machine gun that's, you know, got a four inch barrel and it's suppressed and it, you know, it, it you can't hear it when it runs and, and you're like, yeah, that's, uh, that's a movie thing. It, it doesn't actually happen that way. You, we, we can't do that. And then, you know, you kind of have to let them down. Well, you know what, along those lines, what, what, what absolutely amazes me is how, how effective the media and the liberal side of our politics are anti two a are at, at pushing across an agenda. That's not true. Like no background checks. Nope. We have background checks. I, I I'm amazed. We still have it happen in the shop. Here we are 2023 and people that will come in and it, and it happened. It doesn't happen very often. It, it, it's not uncommon for people to come in and not realize that they have to, to, to file a background check or, or to, to, to go through a background check. Um, it, but the part that doesn't happen very often is people get mad, but occasionally somebody will get delayed and the people that get delayed are generally people that didn't even know that there was a background check. And then you, you know, kind of figure out that they just thought they could just walk in and buy a gun because that's what the media had told them. And, or that they, well, if I just go online and buy it, I don't have to, well, no, that's not the case either because you can't buy a gun online. There's a background check on every single gun that's sent online or the people that say that, you know, you, 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 you can't, you don't have to have a background check. I can just, I can just get a, get, get by without having a background check at a gun show. Nope. That's not the case either. Um, it's, it's just blows my mind that people don't, don't realize that is in place. Yeah, I think they do a really good job in the media of, of portraying, you know, it's it's easy to get a gun and there's there's nothing to it. And, you know, like you said, the gun show loophole is a big one that, that, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've seen in gun stores asking like, hey, well, you know, can I pay extra and you do that workaround, you know, to where we don't have to do any paperwork or anything like that. And there, there's not a way to work around the 4473. No, there is. You can work around it. Just you won't be working for very long. Well, right. Right. There's not a way legally to work around the 4473 and keep your license and, and stay in the industry. And stay outside of jail. Right. Because every single gun that we sell, every single gun that we get in here, every single one has to be accounted for, has to have a 4473, has to be transferred to a FFL, It every single one of them. Mm-hmm. And within 24 hours, and most times it's if you take 24 hours, the ATF frowns on it, that we'll get a request for, you know, the disposition of a gun. And we have to provide them with that information. Where did you get it or where did it go? Or do you still have it or whatever is going on? Um, you know, oftentimes we're back, we get that back to them within an hour. Um, but the system is there. It works. It just needs to be used and followed. And mm-hmm. there needs to be um, resources available for, refining the system. Um, we've got plenty of laws in place. Um, they just need to be enforced and, and refined. It, it is my, not, not, not refined. That's not the right word. Um, resources put to allowing the system to have the information in it that it needs to have to be able to work effectively. But yeah, we got kind of got off on a little bit of a <laughs> tangent there with regards to 
went from video games and calling things things wrong um, to 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 the to the FFL and forty four seventy three, but um, you know, getting back on track with regards to to gunsmithing and and you know your trade and your skill. Is there anything you'd like to you know add for the listeners out there with regards to you know what it is that to be a gunsmith? No, I think we've pretty much covered everything. Um, like I said, just find somebody you know knowledgeable and reputable that that uh, actually knows what they're doing, and and because uh, there's a lot of these guys out there that you know they can put an AR-15 together and they they call themselves a gunsmith or. Um, you know, not to dog on those guys with limited knowledge, just, just, there's a place for them. Um, well, in an AR-15 kind of, you know, being that we're in the industry, an AR-15 is kind of an anomaly with regards to, I mean, it's not really fair to, to, to compare that, that weapon to, you know, a shotgun or anything else, really. I mean, cause it's, it's a kind of a Lego said i mean it can you can take the parts and pieces from just about any ar-15 and put it back on just about any other ar-15 yeah and that's i mean that's they're they're kind of beautiful in their simplicity of of how interchangeable they are and all the options that are out there for them but but again it uh it takes a little bit more you know knowledge and ability to be a gunsmith than just to be able to to you know compress some springs and put some pins in place and and get that right it uh because even with an AR-15, if it comes in with problems, a lot of those guys, they're, you know, they, they don't know how to solve that problem because they, they don't, they don't have the knowledge base of how to actually break that problem down and see what's actually causing the problem. All they can see is, you know, oh, this one doesn't extract. Well, there's, you know, there's 15 different things that could cause a gun not to extract. But if you don't know that, then you, then you're, you know, you're just kind of stuck and unable to fix it because, you know, it's not something super common or, or just right in your face. And again, if you can't find somebody that, you know, that's local, um, we, do, we, we do have guns that are sent to us. Um, you can go to your local FFL dealer and have them ship it to us. We receive it, work on it, and can ship it back. So we do, we do receive guns to have worked on um, from people that are, you know, outside of, of the state of Kansas or, or uh, you know, that are even in Kansas, but you know, it's better to ship it to us because they're four hours away or whatever. So we can, we can definitely help, help with that as well. But, um, well, I appreciate you coming on here. I just kind of wanted to go over and let our listeners out there know, um, you know, talk about gunsmithing talk about the, the world that you live in and working on guns and wrenching on guns, maybe <laughs> hammering on guns. Yeah. What that's like. And, um, you know, if any of you guys want to reach out to us, um, you can reach out to us on social media if you haven't done so already. You know, go out, like our page, Pattern String Outfitters. Uh, we're on uh, Facebook. We're on uh, Instagram, Twitter, or whatever it's called now, X. Um, social uh, YouTube. We're also on YouTube. Um, and I kind of talked about it before on podcasts, but it's imperative that, you know, our listeners and supporters out there, that you guys go out and like our page because if you do not – um, actually like our page, share, um, comment. Um, that's the only way as a two way, um, in the, being in the two way industry, being in the firearm industry that we get any kind of traction or any kind of, um, 
you know, movement out there because um, we're suppressed in every different possible way that we could possibly, that they can come up with. Um, so please, you know, um, share, invite your friends to like our pages. We greatly appreciate it if you like what we're putting out there. And um, if you want to reach out to us, you can always uh, give us a call here in the shop or, or uh, reach out to us on email and our website's powderstring.com and uh, go from there. But I greatly appreciate you coming on, Justin. And until next time, I'm sure we'll have you on again. All right. I appreciate you for having me. Absolutely. All our listeners out there, thank you very much for tuning in. And uh, until next time, this is the Powder and String Podcast. I'm Kip, your host, and we're out. We're out.